You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 38 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. When you own your accounting or tax practice, you will probably move on one day and sell. But how do you do that? How do you sell? I'm talking to Stephen Fine of Growth Focus to better understand this process. Stephen is a specialist business broker for financial services practices. My first question to Stephen is, when is the best time to sell? Here's his answer. It's best to sell when you don't need to sell. When you need to sell, or you've got time pressure, you're at a disadvantage. So you're better off, you've got a stronger negotiating position when you don't absolutely need to sell. So that's the best time to sell. It's better to sell earlier than later? I would say so. I mean, a lot of people say, look, I need to do something. I need to put an exit plan in place. And then, you know, we might get a call three years later. Yeah, I have to sell now. Something's come up. I have to sell. Well, you're in a a weaker position than you were earlier. Because sometimes someone might say, look, I want to sell in two years, but actually they want to do a deal now. They don't realize they're better off doing a deal now. The net result is going to be better for them if they do it now and they're around for their two years to protect their asset, build an upside, than if they start in two years from now. But then again, it always comes down to the individual. Most of the time we're working on behalf of the seller. On very rare occasions would we work on behalf of the buyer. But uh, in answer to your question, it's mainly working on behalf of the seller. Yeah, so it's like real estate. Pretty much, yeah. We were consulting to that uh, segment for many years. And look, it was probably about eight years ago. There was a GFC. Things were, things were pretty tough. And... I kind of started getting questions from principals of financial service practices, you know, accountants saying, look, Steve, we know you know everybody out there. I'm looking for a partner. I'm thinking of selling. I'm thinking of buying. And it was kind of like quite casually. Initially, I started putting people together because I knew them and I knew one had a need and another had a need. And it kind of took off from there and, you know, then went and had got the uh, business broking license and you know, the business morphed into what it is now. Mm. So, so you, that's the background. You yeah. just mentioned a license. So you actually need a license to be a, a business broker. Yes. It's very similar to a real estate uh, oh, license. Really? Yeah. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. So you sit an exam and then you have to show that you have good faith and character. And Yes, I do. Uh, yeah. 75% of it is based on the principles of, you know, property. Real estate, you're selling a house. Yeah. It's the same thing. It just happens to be a business. So the principle is very much the same. So the content is, is, uh, very similar. It's very similar. Yes. What do you mainly cover in these exams? Uh, consumer law disclosure? Yeah. Law, clients. managing a trust account, the ethical aspect to it. Yeah. I mean, it just pretty much covers everything one, one, mm. one would need to know. You set out on your own or did you set out this? No, I set, set out on my own. Mm. And uh, yeah, the business grew from there. Mm. And how do sellers find you? Is the internet the most important thing? As uh, look, we've been, around, we've been around a long time. How do sellers find us? We've probably, uh, I mean, our database, we've got pretty much every accounting practice in the country by region, by postcode. 
And somewhere along the line, we've probably had some contact, you know, with either the principal or, or someone within the organization. So, mm. you know, a lot of people have uh, know us because we've communicated to them in the past. Uh, some comes through the internet. A fair bit comes through word of mouth. If, you know, we've sold a, a business previously and uh, someone, you know, has an associate that's looking to sell. We, mm. you know, we get a, a referral from mm. a, a past uh, client. And so do yeah. you actually have offices in, in the capital cities? Or they sat- yeah, they, they satellite offices in uh, the States. You know, I do a fair bit of traveling. Yeah, for some reason, we've, we, we do a lot of transactions in, on uh, the West Coast. Don't ask me why. It just it happens. And up north, so I, I do do a fair bit of traveling. You know, we get inquiries where they think somebody's thinking of selling and they're thinking of selling down the track. You know, they may not have put in a lot of thought into it. And that's really a case of getting an understanding what is the real motivation and what in an ideal world would be the outcome that you'd look to achieve. Some sellers are really just not sure what uh, options are available to them. Mm, uh, and what and, options are available? Well, look, you can do a transaction now or an agreement now for you know a, a transition in a year, two years' time. It could be a... Uh, trade sale now where it's a walk-in, walk-out. You know, it could be a merger, it could be a, a workout, it could be... What, um, what is a workout? So a workout might be another, a, a buyer comes in and says, look, we'll uh, we'll take a stake in the business and we'll take another stake in the, in the business at a certain point in time, but together let's grow the business. And the motivation for you is to grow the business over or keep the, the, the performance at a particular level or exceed that. And then there's an upside if you can uh, achieve that. There's, there's many, many different ways that it can be done. But generally, we don't get into that initially. It's the most important thing is what's the principal's personal situation and what, what's going to work best for mm. them. Mm. So before we're getting into, into that, it, it's really important for us to understand the person and their particular situation and uh, mm. what, what's going to work best for them. And as importantly, what's not going to work. Some uh, principals have been uh, running the business for 30 years and uh, they've been calling the shots and doing their own thing. And uh, there's some circumstances in, in an agreement where they, you know, overnight now reporting to a boss and it wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. So we've got to ask those questions before saying, okay, look, this is the best strategy to proceed with. I can imagine the new owner and the old owner working together for a time can be a minefield. Have you seen that working well? It raises the question, who who calls the shots now? Who makes the decisions? And as you said, somebody who's been running the business for 30 years, it's probably quite hard to then stand by and watch how somebody else undoes some of Undo the, your work and yeah, do it in a different exactly. way. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Uh, it all comes down to the personalities. When we've, we've seen it work very well. And then we've seen it work, well, we've seen it not work so great when uh, perhaps a, a vendor is overly attached to the business. It, conflict also rises when, you know, a vendor might still have left some money on the table and, uh, you know, the new uh, acquirer wants to do something a certain way and uh, the vendor feels that might, this might damage the business. Well, there's not only the, that's not really the right way to do it, but there's mm. also, oh, look, this is affecting me financially because mm. uh, I've still got some uh, interest, some second installments due on the transaction. Mm. So, And if you now have all prices, 
and reduce revenue by 50%, then that will affect my... Correct, or, or bump up the prices and, and lose clients. A lot of what we do is uh, is giving advice because uh, it's not something that one does. You know, it might be selling a business once in a lifetime, maybe twice in a lifetime. So it's not a regular thing. So, in answer to your question, what are the stages? Look, our first stage is always really just getting uh, understanding of the person or the the stakeholders involved, and what are the what are the uh, motivators for them. That's the number one. You know, we'd, we'd look at that before we even look at the business itself. But assuming that it's quite clear what outcome the the vendor or vendors or you know stakeholders are are seeking, it's pretty much a step by step, quite a formal process. I mean, if I had to summarise it, it's it's you know the initial stages are, are preparing the business for sale, gathering the the relevant uh, data getting a sense of what the value of the business is once that data is collated. Mm-hmm. It's getting an, an idea of what, what the value is and what the market uh, would pay for, for the business, putting the, the documentation in place. What we do is uh, a lot of uh, research as to who the uh, ideal suitors are going to be. I mean, we've got a really large database. We've got thousands of registered buyers with a spec on what they're looking for, geography, size, client type, etc. Where did you get that data from? How do you find out that somebody is looking to buy a client list or buy a practice? Well, oh, because from the, inquiries, probably. from inquiries, they and make from, an inquiry and then yeah, hmm. and through our website. I mean, we get more buyer inquiries than we get seller inquiries. And hence so, just about every every day, we get a new buyer inquiry from somewhere around the country. Now, when that comes in. We then uh, qualify that a little bit further to understand the geographies, the client type, size, you know, whether they need to fund the transaction or not. There's a whole lot of questions that can kind of segment different types of buyers. But the research is also, okay, yes, we've got the registered buyers, but not everyone, although they may be registered, is a serious, serious buyer. You know, they may just want to know what's going on in their neighborhood and not really have the intent. So uh, I guess it's our role to really qualify the, the buyers further and as to their uh, their intentions. Mm-hmm. So there's the research component. Then there's the marketing where we would take the business to market. We keep the uh, vendor's identity confidential. So we protect their anonymity. And that's quite yeah. important, not just for the vendor, but it's also important important so that the clients don't find out that they are part of a sale? The clients don't find out. The staff don't find out. We've got to be very, very careful. If I make a, make a phone call, I've got to be really, really careful leaving messages. You know, the last thing you'd want is... Uh, Do you call under a false name? Like uh, I might just... <laughs> I might say Stephen, really what I say, it's Stephen Fine from Growth Focus, the mm. business brokers, and, you know, you wouldn't yeah. do that. No. The last thing anyone needs is a staff member saying, oh, no, my job's at risk. I better start looking elsewhere. So we've got to be pretty careful there. So anonymity, but also we do a lot of transactions in regional areas. Regional areas, everybody knows everyone. So some of the information is pretty sensitive. And then we do the vetting. So, you know, once we've gone to the market and qualified the buyers, it would be a matter of filtering down to who the most appropriate suitors would be. And uh, then coordinating the face-to-face meetings. Uh, They sign non-disclosure agreements. And uh, 
coordinate meetings. What's usually yeah. discussed in these meetings? Is it kind of a general agenda that most meetings go through, or does it really depend completely on the individual case? We actually spend quite a lot of time putting an information memorandum together. So having done this for as long as we've, we've done it, we, you kind of know what are the key things that any buyer will need to know. Mm-hmm. And we would put that into the, the selling document, if you want to call it that. So by the time they've come to the meeting, they would be pretty clear on, you know, the key aspects of the business. So those meetings generally is um, expanding on some of the information that they've already got, getting to know each other, you know, is there chemistry, you know, can the two parties work together, are they clashing? So that, that's generally how the first meeting runs. And then, you know, it may, take a, it may take a second meeting, but ultimately it would come down to progressing to a indicative offer stage. So the uh, prospective uh, acquirer may make an offer, and then it's a matter of articulate, like confirming exactly what the offer is and putting a heads of agreement document together. And I found this to be one of the most important aspects because before one gets uh, the lawyers involved, it needs to be very, very clear what is going into the contract of sale document. And although we're not lawyers, we actually put the heads of agreements together. We state we're not lawyers, but it's so important that it's done in layman's terms that everyone is very, very clear on what it all means. Bullet points. So often the two parties may say, oh, yes, we agree, everything's rosy. And then we might be doing a check and we'd say, you know, Mr. Buyer, what, what do you understand by bullet point three? And they may say, well, it means this. They may have thought they had agreed in the document, but you've got to just revisit these things over and over again. Say, hold on, gentlemen, ladies, we've got to iron this out before we take the next step. Right? Uh, and it may, it's a matter of revisiting it and uh, double-checking. Once that's all done and the heads of agreement is uh, is signed off, then you move to the to the legals. Until the heads of agreement is signed off, you don't actually liaise with the lawyers. The lawyers come after that heads of agreement. Preferably, yes. I strongly advise that... Uh, the lawyers stay out of the game. Until yes, and I've got some very good lawyer friends and... Uh, they would hate me for saying this, but I would get the lawyers in at the end stages. I've seen... Uh, they complicate lo- things. Yes, but I've also seen lawyers destroy very good deals. In fairness, a lot of the... You know, the lawyer hasn't been at the initial meeting, doesn't know the spirit of the, the agreement, the transaction. Doesn't There's, know the market. Some don't know the market. Some, you know, are looking at it in black and white, purely contractually. And uh, don't see that it's actually a great, great deal for their client. At a bargain correct, price. C- correct. There's that aspect, and you know they may um, dig dig the heels in on a on a particular point. Mm. I, I can give you a couple idea. of yeah. That that's not really what the whole thing's about. So I've seen deals fall over because of that, where they could have been avoided by talking layman's initially, getting it all ironed out, and then instructing the lawyers based on the heads of agreement. Do you have a specific case in mind where that happened? Well, we've got one going on right now, actually. I'm not convinced that they fully understand the transaction. The the questions that they're asking are really 
very, very basic. So I have a sense that they're on a learning curve themselves. I don't think they're a lawyer that does, you know, financial service transactions regularly. You know, that might be, you know, that might be involved in other types of law. And uh, that, that's been a bit frustrating, but the lawyer's kind of digging the heels in about certain things and is scaring the buyer. Relevant. They're not that relevant, but it's also scaring the buyer. And it's not necessarily coming from the seller, but the seller's convinced that they have to listen to the lawyer. So it's really the lawyer now that's negotiating, but you want to get the negotiating out of the way before the, the, before lawyers, the lawyers because mm. then you've got another party involved and it just becomes more complex. Mm. And do both parties usually have their own lawyers? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. So that means you then basically have five parties. There's you. Correct. There's the buyer and the seller, and then there are the buyer and the seller. Correct. Correct. Lawyers, all with an ego to... Yes, to, exactly. To stroke. Exactly, mm. exactly. So can get uh, quite uh, spirited, I'll use that word. Mm. <laughs> so that's the legal process, contract of sale, agree on a, you know, usually there's a due diligence process as well. Agree on an exchange and settlement date. And then um, there's completion and the handover. So uh, the transition. How is the new owner going to hand over the business to... Mm. No, I, sorry, how is the, the vendor going to hand over the business to the new owner? Yes. And are you still involved at that stage or is your job basically done when the signatures on the contract? Uh, how far are you... Yeah, involved? we do help with... Uh, hand over to the degree that we've got a whole lot of templates and case studies um, of, uh, you know, successful transitions and, you know, just some words of advice and pointers. Uh, we've got a, a, a letter, um, you know, some, well, we've got a number of sample letters that, that uh, our clients have used in the past where they've, um, you know, announced to clients about the change Uh, and there's some good ways and some not so good ways of uh, communicating that to clients. Mm. But so yeah. the bulk of your work is up to the um, signing of the contract. The bulk of our work is to signing of the contract, but uh, not the heads of agreement, but the signing of the contract. The signing of the contract, yes. And uh, look, by that stage, we've developed a, a pretty good relationship with both parties. So if we can help in any way, it's uh, we're available. So templates or we can put people in contact with particular uh, parties or service providers. And most uh, contracts would probably include an earn-out arrangement so that part of the purchase price is paid later based on certain key performance indicators, certain sale revenue. Correct, yes. Yeah. So mo most of the transactions are, just to keep it simple, a first installment and a second installment. The bulk of the payment is the first installment. And then the second installment is often subject to the business maintaining that level for a certain point in time. So an example might be paying 70, 80% upfront and then 20% after 12 months or 15 months based on certain criteria. And is that quite standard that 70 to 80% is for the first installment or does it vary a lot? Have you seen sales where oh, I've, the I've, first installment yeah. was only 50% and you have seen sales where the first installment was 90%? Does it fluctuate a lot or is it pretty much sitting between 70 and 80%? Uh, no, it does fluctuate. I mean, I've seen as low as 30% up front, 80%, 90% up front. I mean, 
we've even done 100% up front. Now, generally, 100% up front, it may affect the multiple, uh, the total transaction price. It's a delicate balance. You, you know, there's two sides to it. You've got the buyer, the buyer's view who's saying, well, it's a bit of a leap of faith. We're going to pay the money, and what happens if we show up on, at the office on day one and we found out that the clients aren't there or it's not quite what we thought or mm. the clients leave because of this reason or that reason. So we kind of just need a little bit of a protection. On the seller's side, the seller's point of view is, well, that's great, but I'm leaving 20% at risk. What if you come in and mess, uh, it, up. mess it up? I'm being penalized because you're messing it up. So there's two sides to it, and uh, in every transaction that we do, you know, there's this balance and, mm. and, and getting a, a fair a solution. A fair both, solution. Yeah. 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 And I can imagine that's probably one of the points that get most negotiated, don't they? The the split between first and second instalment and how uh, the yes. second instalment is calculated. Yes. So I'd say the three big points on the negotiation is t total price. Payment terms, first and second instalment and timing, and then transition. So that those would be the three big big mm. points. And in terms of transition period, what have you seen at the lowest end and at the at the longest end? And what's what's quite common is the transition of twelve months very common, or a transition of two years or three years? I think it also depends on the buyer. Well, it depends on the some buyers would prefer the vendor to uh, exit earlier, and some. You know, it suits them to have the vendor on for six months, mm. 12 months. Mm. In a number of cases, the vendor might have exited but still uh, have their picture on the wall, so to speak, and still be on the website and still take uh, the odd call from and or consult to the business over time on a, on a part-time basis. But, yeah, that's the extremes of that. I've, you know, we've had uh, vendors who just couldn't wait to get out of there and, and uh, uh, you know, hung around for a week, showed the, the buyer where the uh, where the bathroom machine. is and the coffee machine, and then they're out of there. So, yeah, it just depends on the two parties and what, what they're and, looking for. And it's usually the tendency that the vendor wants to stay longer than the buyer would like him to, or is the usual tendency that the vendor would rather leave earlier than later and the buyer would rather see him longer. I don't know if there's an answer to that. Because I can think of so many examples where buyer would like the, the vendor to exit earlier. Vendor would like to exit earlier or later. I don't really think there's oh, okay. a, there's a, there's a, a general answer. You know, it's, it's about people and their particular situations. You know, the motivation for selling will also determine that. You know, generally you'd sell a business for a couple of reasons. One, retirement, gen, you know, genuine retirement. There's some situations where it's ill health, some situations where just tired of the business and want to do something completely different, some situations where it might be financial duress. So, yeah, I think it just comes down to each individual's you know, personal uh, situation. Basically, the most valuable asset in any professional services practice is the client list. Well, I think that's really the only asset. What are you actually buying? Well, mm. you're buying the servicing rights and the revenue rights to a client list. The real estate, the office, yeah. etc., is probably usually in a separate legal entity. Does that usually go with the business or totally depends? Sometimes it does. In because most I, cases, it doesn't. Oh, I see. Because I can imagine the location is part of the goodwill. 
Yes. That accounting practice has always been at that corner. Everybody knows there's the accountant. If now suddenly this practice has to move to somewhere else, I can imagine it's a loss of goodwill. I don't don't see it that way. Yeah, no, look, I mean, a lot of transactions, they might buy the business and then uh, bring it into their existing business. Oh, okay. The location is becoming less important now than it had been with online and you know, different ways of communicating. It's becoming less important. It is more important uh, if it was individual tech, individual returns, where PAYG, when they're just popping in and they've been doing that for the last couple of years, that would have an effect. If the if the office suddenly wasn't there, well, yeah. okay, it so might when, go somewhere else. When a, a tax or accounting practice has a lot of individual tax return clients yeah. in the location plays a bigger role than if it's Correct. more companies, trusts, yes. SMSs. Yes, yes. And generally, uh, you know, business clients, SMSF, you know, trusts, partnerships, those type of businesses would generally be valued higher than, you know, pure uh, high returns oh, okay. business. Because they are also more likely to walk, you know, they're easier to transfer a company or trust is less likely to change yes. accountants, whereas yes. high return is more likely to walk around the corner and go to somebody else. Yes, correct. Are you still around at the payment of the second installment? Because I can imagine that's where very often the conflict starts when the second installment has to be calculated. Yeah, well, we're still around. We, uh, we, we're not going anywhere. But do, you, you know, do a lot they of... call you? Do they call you when there's a disagreement or when they need to yes. work it out? Or is it then usually just the, the buyer, seller and their lawyers that work it out and you're kind yes. of... I mean, yes, I, yes we, do, we do get called and, and we can uh, help as, as much as we can in that case. The key to it is really getting it very, very clear before so you know, at the much. at the time of agreement, you know, loose formulas is a problem. So to avoid that, we like to again, it comes down to this heads of agreement. You know, going back to to each party and saying, okay, in a situation such as a client passes away, for example, what's going to happen then when you do the second the second installment calculation? Oh, we never thought of that. Okay, well, let's agree to that. Tick. What's going to happen if a client leaves because they're unhappy with the service that they've been getting. What's going to happen then? Oh, well, no, look, if the client states they don't want to work with, with the new buyer because they haven't, they've given them bad service, well... Well, they don't like the haircut or... Um, correct. Mm. Then what are we going to do then? Okay, let's agree. Yeah, so if, if Mr. and Mrs. Smith leave or this company leaves because of that, this is how we're going to uh, calculate it. So it really comes out down to those type of conversations and discussions before. You know, if they haven't been covered before, well, when it happens after, then you, you're back in negotiation. But it's, it's very difficult to negotiate once a contract's in place. You know, then it's going, okay, well, let's look at the contract. What does the contract say? Oh, contract doesn't actually Discuss- stipulate that. Well, now we've got a fight on our hands. So, yeah, that, that's the key to it is, is getting it right at the beginning. So in, in your experience, usually the handover is actually not that conflict-ridden because it has been well laid out beforehand. It's perfectly clear for both sides how it's calculated. So the handover is, and the second installment is actually not that. Yeah, if done correctly, it should be pretty straightforward. This is how it's done. This is the formula. We're going to take the client list then. We're going to take the client list now. We're going to um, 
you know, work out the differences, and this is this is the end result. So again, there's a number of different ways that these uh, second installment calculations or, or clawbacks can work. Some are done on a total revenue. Some are done on a client by client basis. So there's there's a number of different ways that it can work. So looking at the value of an accounting practice now, and you already hinted at it, saying that uh, an accounting practice with a lot of I returns is usually less valuable than an accounting practice with a lot of companies and trusts, etc. What else influences the price? How long the business has been around, whether it's had consistent revenue over you know, X number of years, whether the profits have been consistent over you know, the last three, four years, staff, whether the staff are stable or you know, a, lot of, a lot of turnover, geographic spread of clients, type of clients... You know, in some cases, age of clients. Yes, if all yeah. clients are 80 plus, then it's probably less valuable than if yeah. clients are in their 30s or 40s. Yeah, yeah. So those, those are some of the factors that come into it. It also depends on what your, your time horizons are. If you need to sell now, you're going to just work with what you've got and, and, and make the best of it. You know, what are the key things that buyers are looking for? Good data is a big one. Tidy data, tidy files. You know, the messier the file system, the less confidence the buyers have. Does the software so, influence yeah. the price? Blue zero, green zero, everything is quite well set up. Would that increase the price as opposed to somebody who has good clients but is still on desktop software? I don't think it would uh, affect the price because Signif the, significantly. I mean, it, yes, it is easier. But the buyer but, is probably transferring everything to his own accounting system anyway, so therefore it doesn't matter so much where the data is at the moment. Yes, most of the time they're going to need to transfer it to their system anyway. I don't think that's a significant factor, the software. No, I'd say it's more the quality of the clients. Coming back to when you said that the only, basically the only asset of an, a professional services practice is the client list. Well, you could, sorry, I'll correct that. I mean, there's also the staff, the staffing, you know, and the positioning in the market. Do most vendors keep the name or do most vendors move the client list to their own brand name? I mean, half bias, and half, bias, sorry, yeah, uh, Half and half. Some of our buyers are larger organizations, some of the national organizations, and they would, um, you know, acquire the business and just put it into their, into, they've got scale, so it all fits into a system and they roll, they roll with it under a new brand. Probably the smaller, the smaller it is, again, it's, you know, 50-50, you know, if a, if a business is counting practice, has got the, uh, the vendor's name in the, uh, mm. in the title. And it's probably more likely that they will change it. Yeah, I'd say they would probably change it. Mm. Uh, and it also depends whether they've got an existing business or not. If it's uh, a buyer who doesn't have an existing business, well, they'll probably keep it. If they've got an existing business, well, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to run two different brands concurrently. So you're going to either go under that brand or your original brand. And that probably also applies to the premises. If a buyer has an existing business, they will probably close the premises down and just move the clients across. Whereas if the buyer doesn't have an existing premise, then they might Correct. move in and just yeah. start running it. Correct. When you talk about the preferences of the vendors, I can imagine that will matter to them. I can imagine the thought of everything being closed down, the moving out. It does. I, I can think of a... Uh, I can imagine a lot of vendors say, oh, I wanted to continue where it is mm, with that name. Yeah, I can give you... Uh, 
there's many examples. The one that comes to mind is uh, we were due to sign at the end of the week. Contracts were done, ready to go. Everybody was happy. And the vendor, I think it was Thursday night, rang me up and said, I just can't do it. I just, and the reason was I just don't even, because they had to move. I just don't know what my desks, my new desks going to be like. And I'm just feeling very uneasy and I'm really sorry. I just can't go through with it. So that particular vendor, it, it didn't want to change. It wanted to continue. Part of the transaction was continuing on. Mm. He desk, just wanted his, de- his desk in his corner. location, mm. didn't want to move. Have I got to, you know, where am I going to park? Those were the issues. So, mm. And did he change his mind or did the whole thing fall through? Three years later, we've actually uh, concluded a transaction with him where he's staying in his existing premises and it's a very good opportunity for him and the new uh, buyer. Um, oh, I see. So the buyer agreed to work with him. Oh, yes, yes. But and again, it was just the matching. The matching was just perfect. The, uh, the buyer had a network that would allow the business to grow significantly and uh, it allowed the vendor to do keep his desk desk, absolutely and uh, allowed him to do what he enjoyed most and that was just having coffee with clients it was the back office stuff that was just driving him nuts and uh, yeah that's a particularly good outcome Uh, but Mm. it it did take quite a while and I can imagine that actually would benefit the new owner as well because this client relationship is is very valuable. Yes. When the vendor has known the clients for the last 20 years, that's yes. that's of value Yes, yes. to keep that relationship. Yes, and worked out well for, for everybody. You know, for the vendor, he, he didn't want to stop working, but he wanted to stop continuing on as, as he had been and mm. that this was the perfect uh, back office yes yes so this was the perfect outcome you know secured his exit and built in an upside for him along the way mm. do you see more share sales or more asset sales more asset sales the shared sales add a little bit more complexity to it in the due diligence and you know making and, sure there's no underlying you know unknown uh, tax debt or yes so and i can imagine it's an asset sale because the professional services practice is always at risk of being sued etc and with an asset sale you correct. don't buy that risk correct does the time of the year matter to the sales process? A lot of transactions like to be kept clean, you know, often they settle on the last day of the financial year. Okay, so usually so to, of June. Yeah. No, I, I don't really think there's a there's a better time. I mean, if it's in the middle of tax season and it's a lot busier period, it's a lot more difficult to pin people down. They're really, really busy. It's a lot more difficult for them to absorb uh, information and set up meetings, etc. So, you know, generally the uh, the quieter periods are when we get more traction. Mm-hmm. And when are the quieter periods? You know, over 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 December, a lot of agreements oh, really? uh, are finalised. The sun is shining. The, the sun is shining. You're just the about to go on holiday. You want to you want to wrap this up before you get on the beach. We've generally had a f- quite a lot of completions towards the end of the year. And then again, end of financial year. So that means September, October, November. It's a good time to it's, start. It's a good time to start. Yeah, because think about it. It takes a fair few months to get to that settlement stage. How long does it take? Um, what's a realistic time frame? So if somebody comes and says, I want to sell tomorrow, that's not realistic. If somebody says, 
I want to sell in five years. It probably doesn't make sense either. What's the realistic time frame? Two months, three months, six months, a year? Three months to five months. We've had transactions that have occurred actually a lot quicker than that. But on average, from preparing the business, collecting the data, uh, taking it to market, qualifying, going through all the meetings, negotiating, getting the agreements in place then the contracts can drag out as well. And then if it's subject to finance, well, that can drag the chain as well. So it just depends how many things are dependent on completion, mm. how many moving parts, and they've all got to come together. But look, three months, three months I think is is fair. But we've had deals that have gone on for uh, one is, uh, you know, it's it's been almost two years and it's ongoing. So you get extremes. something completely different sure. and that is how big is your organization and is it one of the biggest or is it just one of many big big players in the market we've got five in the business if you had to describe the broker market you know there's a, a couple of specialists you know who only work in in uh, a particular segment and then you've got brokers who would do everything and anything so uh, they might sell a financial service practice and then selling a food business and then a, a media business and then an internet business. But we only work in uh, professional service practices, mm. so and accounting accounting firms and uh, financial planning businesses. So we don't go outside of that space. And I find that uh, it's more beneficial because we, we, you know, the we know the industry, we know the people, uh, we've got a history with A lot of the buyers, you know, we've most likely had communication or dealt with them before. So you don't need to be on a new learning curve for every business. It's uh, financial service business has got a lot of similarities. So. And are there many brokers like you that focus on professional services or is that quite unique? There's a few. There's not a lot. You know, most of the business broken firms would be generalist firms. But there, there, there are a couple that only you know, work in, in this particular space, yes. I can imagine your profession, the most important skill is actually people skills. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a people aspect to it, absolutely. It's, um, there's egos, there's uh, sensitive uh, information. Uh, it's an emotional roller coaster for the seller and in many cases the buyer as well if it's the first time so yeah it comes down to trust but yeah the personality aspect and the, and the people component is 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 pretty important you know and it can get very tense at times i'll just think of one example with um oh this was one with a, a lawyer and it was you know coming to blows it was really really tense And, uh, to extra blows, physical not, blows? Not, no, no, I'm just, ex I'm just exaggerating. It was just, it was really verbal tense blows. and verbal blows, yes. And uh, I kind of just landed up speaking to the lawyer and I said, look, this is just going to get out of hand. Let's just start again. Come on. Let's just start again. Let's just get to a solution and clean slate. What's been said has been said. Let's put it in the past. Come on, let's just get it. He said, no, you're right. Let's do it. And uh, we managed to overcome it. But there was some high emotion. Mm. Yeah. And where do you get most of the tension between the buyer and the seller or between the buyers and sellers' lawyers? Or A lot of the time it happens when it gets to the lawyer stage. You know, an example might be... Um, You know, you've come to an agreement and the lawyer wants to change something on the uh, non-compete clause, for example. Well, 
this can to be a posturing thing to the buyer. It could be a very, very significant thing. It could freak the buyer out. Like, why? What's behind this? Why is the lawyer saying this? So, what's the hidden agenda? What's the hidden agenda? Is this person wanting to sell and then going to come take the business back? And mm-hmm. you know, it's a very sensitive thing. So, it does sometimes happen with with lawyers who who might not have that intent. They just want to change a word here or there or, or make a statement about something. So, communicating everything behind requested changes is really important as well because someone can get the wrong idea. And, totally misunderstand uh, the, the intention behind it. So, yeah, part of our role is uh, checking in, we call it. Something's been done, well, let's just check. Is, is, is that person sitting now stewing and steam coming out of their ears or are they? do they have questions? Do they understand it? Are they okay with it? Are they not okay with it? Well, we've got to check in with people all the time. Again, another example might be someone doesn't phone you back, says they're going to phone you back. I'll get the document across to you by this afternoon. They don't doesn't arrive. Well, the person waiting for it might be just sitting there watching the inbox the whole day expecting it, doesn't get it. By the end of the day, they're, they're distraught. And the person who was sending it was, oh, no big deal. I'll get it tomorrow. No big deal. It is a big deal. So, yeah, we're constantly checking in with people. Mm. So when you're not on a plane, you're on the phone? Uh, yeah, spend most of the time on the phone, traveling, reading, reading documents. documents. Yeah, by the coffee machine. I'm having way too much coffee. I've got to cut that down dramatically. But yeah, spend a lot of time on the on on the phone and and doing documents. But you know, also travelling a lot more now as well. Did you get a strong legal background through this work? Oh, I'm learning a lot about the legal process. Absolutely, yeah, because we got to uh, get involved with these uh, clauses. First of all, the heads of agreement, but then that's got to translate into the contract, and we got to be there throughout the process, knowing what changes are being made to the contract, and you know whether it's a big issue or it's not a big issue. You got to keep your eye on it the whole time. So, yes, I've learned a lot about the legal legal process. Do you feel like you could sit a few exams? Yeah, I think so. Uh, no, I mean, we've got to keep stating that we're not lawyers, we're not allowed to give legal advice, but uh, yeah, I might be big noting. But I, I reckon I could uh, put a, a fairly good contract together with the experience we've had so far. What size of accounting practices do you usually get involved in? So, for example, KPMG just sold their SMSF administration business to OneVu. Yeah. yeah. That would have been quite a big sale. Yeah. What's the typical size of business that you... So, you know, for those kind of things, we, we team up with... Uh, we've got a couple of M&A, big institutional partners that, that we work with on large deals like that. But the bulk of um, our focus and activity is at the, uh, you know, the practice level. It might be one, two, three, sometimes four partner firms. You know, perhaps a number of office locations, or down to, you know, down to an individual single principal owner. So that that's the bulk of our, our our focus is is more at the practice level. So is it is it usually that small buys small and medium buys medium, or do you very often see big buys small and medium buys small? Big buys small. In that situation, the key the key thing is that they've got the resource to continue the business on. Uh, so that's generally their main. Yeah, so they, their they, main issue. They move the client list to their brand. They move the client list to their brand, but they just got to be comfortable that they've got this the staffing resources to maintain that level of profitability. You know, when you're a single buyer and you're putting your own money in, 
and you're going in and working in that particular office, well, you know, you got your house on the line, you're going to work, you know, you, you're motivated. Uh, but when it's a large organization, you may not get that level of motivation down at the practice level. So, And then clients might, might walk because they don't get this individual yeah, it might not, after anymore. Correct. So, I mean, we've got a lot of large organizations that are buyers that we do work with. So, yeah, big, big buyers, small. You know, a lot of the transactions are same size, buyers, same size. Is that the bug that you see, same size, buyers, same size? The bulk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it would be the bulk, yeah. So you've got the motivation from the buyers. Look, we've got a substantial business. It's going nicely. We want to grow. Acquisition's the best way for us to do that. We've got our systems in place. We can make an acquisition. We can get some scale there. And uh, we can increase our, increase our profitability overall by doing that and grow so uh, acquisition makes sense for us. My original question was how are practices sold? Is it usually the entire business with premises, rental, employees, client list, sofa, desk, etc.? Or is it usually just the client list? And my gut feeling is now that it's really the client list and the staff. It's Everything the client list, yeah. So much. It's the client list. You know, planting equipment is pretty secondary and marginal in the big picture. Staffing, I mean, in some of the negotiations, you know, buyers might stipulate, and it's very, very, this becomes a bit difficult. And there might be a key person in there who they is important. Either they don't want or they do want. And they'd say, look, look, we want to make this acquisition, but we want to know that that particular person is settled and comfortable and happy with us. I mean, we've had a number of deals that have come down to the meeting between the buyer and the existing key staff member. Mm. And, uh, you know, you just cross your fingers and just hope they hit it off because if they don't, the deal's off. It already takes quite a good knowledge of the business to know that this is the key person. Yes. And to, then to, and to know whether you, the vendor wants that person or not. Yeah, so look, that would come out of discussions, just understanding if we make this acquisition, what's the what's the business going to look like, who's going to be doing what, what happens if that person's not there, can we plug the gap or not, how pivotal is it, and uh, do I need to make that part of this negotiation? And But it's a difficult one because at the end of the day, if, the, if staff aren't happy, well, what are you going to do? Another example was... Uh, We'd completed a transaction and the uh, purchaser came in to meet the staff and I don't know what happened, but that particular day the purchaser just came off pretty aggressive and... Everybody resigned. Not everyone resigned. The three key people got together after the first meeting and went, mm, I don't want to work for that person. And they came as a group to the vendor and said, we are totally rattled by uh, the meeting we just had. Deal was off. And uh, I think the person was kind of came off as super, super aggressive. You know, maybe it was a management style. Maybe it was just communicating that things were going to change, but it didn't work. Have you ever facilitated um, a merger between two practices? I can imagine that's very, very rare. Yeah, it is rare. Yes, we have. It is more difficult. Generally, I question whether there's such a thing as a true merger. There's Generally, a control, you know, there's a controlling party and a, mm. you know, it still comes down to a larger player or mm. more, more, a player with more, more stake. So when it's called you know, a merger, it's usually called a merger to protect somebody's feelings. Uh, yeah, I think that's a nice way of saying it. 
Yeah. Is it usually more smaller and medium practices that sell? Yeah, because if you think about it, if you look at an individual, they're the only ones. So they, they need an exit strategy and, you know, there will come a time when they need to exit. So you need, need to plan for it. Welcome back. I hadn't expected that involving lawyers too early can be an issue. In the next episode, episode 39, Manoj Abushandani of trustee.com.au will talk about his online ventures. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.